There it goes again. Every hour, on the hour, coughing and puffing. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first. But that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight. Every hour on the hour. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Paul Matthews, who will be discussing his book, The Bard and the Brain. Also, we'll find out why corn gives off silk. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grox. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad. Actually, much better from last week. Yeah, indeed. I guess you were suffering from quite a bit of the cold last week there. Yes, in the middle of summer. Yes, indeed. You can and believe all, it. All of our listeners were sending out their heartfelt to you, I'm sure. Oh, thank you. Okay. So, what's in the uh, news of science? I'm not really sure what's in the news of science. I'm still curious about what's in the news of your biological cold there. Probably cosmic bacteria, which leads me to my first story. Oh, brilliant. Uh, do you love bacteria crawling all over your face, pores, and uh, body? I love bacteria as I would love myself. Wow. But uh, good news for statues out there. Bacteria may uh, protect statues from uh, eroding. A group in Spain has discovered a species of bacteria that seems to reside in the pores of marble statues, and apparently marble statues have poor structure. And what these bacteria do is seem to excrete carbonates, so they sort of remineralize the, uh, the surface, and so you know you'll protect it from pollution eating away at the surface of these. Uh, oh, I see. So as acid rain chips away at it, the yeah. bacteria will just replenish it. Yeah. But won't it be kind of lumpy? I mean, I'm sure they're not even all over the surface. Of it. Probably not. But I mean, you know, it's at the microscopic level, so right, right. It's, maybe that's all you really need. Sure. Yeah, sort of like putting fluoride to your teeth. I guess. So um, it's interesting. Maybe they could apply these bacteria to some famous statues that need some uh, protection from the smog or acid rain. So uh, if anyone wants to know more, just go to last week's issue of Science. Well, I guess uh, if you're big fans of bacteria, you might also be big fans of opiates. Wow, the good stuff, huh? Aren't they going on in Afghanistan these days? Is that right? No, that's what I've heard. That's like their uh, main cash crop. Well, I guess anything to support the local economy. <laughs> well, it turns out, though, you know, opiates are very powerful painkillers, as many people know. Right. But they do come with a little bit of baggage in that they tend to also suppress breathing, you know, autonomic responses. Oh, uh, I mean, that'd be a good thing. No, I guess not. And actually, uh, in, in that uh, recent Russian theater hostage, you might remember, they used right. a very powerful opiate known as a fentanyl. Right, to knock out the uh, terrorists, but right. it kill a lot of the hostages as well. Right, because of actually the fact that uh, it suppresses breathing response. I see. Uh, but a group of researchers were wondering if they could actually disentangle the uh, effects of opiates such as fentanyl 
their effects on breathing, separating it from their uh, sedative effects. Right. So what they did is they actually looked at brain structure called the pre-Botzinger complex. Mm-hmm. And it has a certain type of receptor called the 5-HT4-alpha receptor. Right. But essentially what this does is it's, it's particularly receptive to the fentanyl drug. I see. So what they did is they added enhancers uh-huh. of this 5-HT4-alpha when they gave a dose of fentanyl. Okay. And they basically were able to reactivate the breathing response even after it had been knocked out by the opiates. Oh, okay. So it's kind of cool because now you can like give the opiate, add in the enhancer, and you'll just be sedated, but you won't stop breathing. Wow, designer drugs. Indeed. So it's, it's kind of cool. <laughs> Of course, these studies were all done in rats, so it, it remains to be tested what the actual complex is in humans and if they can Indeed. extend to that. Indeed. But it's kind of neat, and uh, if you want to find out about this, uh, we'll find it in the, rec- uh, the recent edition of Science Now. Right, so have you been uh, looking at the stars these days? I look up at the stars every day trying to uh, wish for a better life on some other planet. Another planet? Wow. Uh, incidentally, it turns out they've discovered another planet. Wow. They're um, just discovering them all the time nowadays. Yeah, extrasolar planets, right? Um, it turns out this could be the oldest one that they found so far. About 13 billion years old. Unlike our sun, which is like 4.5 billion. This is far older than what possible since 13 billion would be close to the age when the Big Bang happened. What's so significant about this is it was previously believed that you need at least one generation of stars to burn out first and then form planets because you need the heavy elements that's formed by the fusion process. Right, so the stars actually are creating the metals that are responsible for right. forming the planet. Right, but this is entirely unexpected since this is evidence that there were some metals already offhand at the yeah, first generation to uh, create these planets. Researchers are, I'm sure, puzzled by this finding. Yeah, they are, and they have to uh, revise their theories on planetary evolution. Well, it's about time, you know, because <laughs> planetary theories I've never really been quite happy with. Yeah, kind of mushy stuff, huh? <laughs> So they were able to determine this when they were looking at the uh, M4 star. It was a pulsar, and it turns out that there's also a white dwarf around it, but the way these uh, objects are traveling around each other, it seems to imply there was another object, and I guess their recent analysis from the Hubble telescope determined that there was indeed another planet in that vicinity and probably in one of its orbits. So uh, this was a study that was carried out by Alan Boss, an astronomer at the Carnegie Institute in Washington. Right, and finally, you may want to watch How You Nod. You went up and down, left and right. Exactly. How come? Well, the, uh, researchers have known mannerisms actually influence how you're thinking. Okay. So people who are told to smile perhaps might feel a little bit happier just through the act of smiling. I thought it's the other way around. Your thinking of influences your body uh, movements, right? Well, just say smile right now, right? Yeah. You can't help but feel a little bit elated because it's not incongruent to actually smile but feel unhappy. Well, you forced me to become happy. Indeed. It turns out that uh, a group of researchers who have been looking at a number of these sort of psychological traits that are influenced by your behavior have also been looking at head nodding. Head nodding. Yeah, so it turns out that for a long time people thought that people who were forced to nod their head in agreement or shake their heads in disagreement mm-hmm. were actually influencing their thoughts by actually nodding or to particular speeches. Right. So what they did is they actually tested this. They played a bunch of speeches uh-huh. and had subjects either shake their heads mm-hmm. in disagreement or nod their heads in agreement. Mm-hmm. And what they found out was that the actual action did influence their thoughts on the actual content of the speech. Interesting. 
interesting. So it could also influence their opinions. Essentially what it seemed to do, people thought, well, if you just nodded, then you would automatically agree with the speech. Yeah. But in fact, what it turns out is that nodding strengthens your opinion already held. So, wow. if, you, so if you either agree with the speech or disagree with, say, a speech, uh-huh. and you're nodding, basically it's just going to strengthen your opinion of what you think. Wow. I agree with you, Charles. I, I can tell. He's nodding in agreement. <laughs> Uh, so this is kind of interesting. So it doesn't suggest like a one-to-one correlation, nodding agreement, but the study could have implications for a broad range of situations, including, say, political campaigns and advertisements. Wow. Basics. Uh, I suppose so. But this is an interesting study carried out by Petty and Brunel, and it's published in the recent edition of the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, Dr. Paul Matthews will be joining us from Oxford University to discuss his new book, The Bard on the Brain. So stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, few would argue that Shakespeare was one of the greatest playwrights in history. Each of his plays is a compelling and complex portrait of the human condition. His themes, love, family, adultery, treachery, addiction, and depression, resonate with as much truth today as they did when they were first written four centuries ago. But although Shakespeare's influence on theater is universally recognized, one innovative neuroscientist is using modern brain imaging to explore Shakespeare's prophetic insights into the mind. Well, joining us today to discuss these issues on Berkeley Grocks is Dr. Paul Matthews. Dr. Matthews is a professor of neurology at the University of Oxford and director of the Oxford Center for Functional Magnetic Imaging of the Brain. He serves on the scientific advisory panel of the um, Royal Institute Science Center, as well as on several British medical committees and journal editorial boards. He is currently the co-author of the new book, Bard on the Brain, Understanding the Mind Through the Art of Shakespeare and the Science of Brain Imaging, and joins us today to discuss Shakespeare and the brain. Uh, Dr. Matthews, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Well, Charles, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, you've written a very fascinating book with Jeffrey McQuain, in which you're just trying to link a little bit of Shakespeare and functioning of the human brain. I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about your book. Well, I'd be pleased to. The idea behind the Bard and the Brain was fundamentally to try to make modern brain science exciting for the general public, to try to draw a connection that would be a little bit novel, but also um, something that would perhaps enhance the way in which people saw this science. Shakespeare certainly wasn't a scientist in, in a way that we would recognize today, but what he was, and you referred to it in your introduction, is he was a tremendous observer of the people around him. And it was these keen observations, very accurate portrayals of psychology that made his plays exciting then and keep them alive today. Shakespeare was interested not only in describing things, but also in trying to understand mechanisms of mind 
he thought about them in much more psychological terms than most modern cognitive neuroscientists. But nonetheless, he was doing much the same sort of thing that we're trying to do now, characterize and understand the ways in which um, mind states change. So it seemed to Jeff and I that this was an exciting way to make modern brain science, which is telling us about the way in which the brain works, giving us a neural basis of mind. This was an exciting way of making this um, understandable to the general public. Even more timely is, is the fact that in the last decade or so, particularly with the advent of brain imaging techniques such as functional magnetic resonance imaging, which uses MRI scanners to give a map of, of the functioning brain, scientists begun to really explore a whole range of very complex issues about human brain and behavior. The same question Shakespeare was interested in, motivation, emotion, good and evil, uh, love, so that's what we're trying to get across in the book, that science and art are really approaching the same fundamental problems about human nature using slightly different tools, but nonetheless, um, questions are the same. And, and so the two approaches can illuminate each other to some extent. Uh, I, I certainly agree. Perhaps we could get a specific example here, for instance, in Hamlet or Merchant of Venice, you talk about our shared humanity. And... Uh, those, are, those are both interesting examples. If we go to Hamlet in one of the intriguing things that one can read into the graveyard scene where, where Hamlet and um, Horatio are kneeling over York's grave. Hamlet picks up York's skull and not knowing who it was, he recognizes this as belonging to a unique individual. And how could this be possible? Well, in fact, the inner surface of the skull adopts a shape that closely uh, mirrors the external shape of the brain. And one of the things that we've come to realize, particularly with, with brain imaging, which allows us to compare brains very easily, is that the precise shape, the nature of the folds, the asymmetries between the two hemispheres, and so on, of each individual's brain is about as unique as a fingerprint. Brain structure is related to brain functions, not in quite such direct ways as the phrenologists of the 19th century um, suggested, but in clearly demonstrable ways. Uh, one of the extraordinary experiments that, that I've enjoyed reading about, done by my colleague uh, Richard Fakoviak and his group in London, where they, they explored this by looking at a group of London taxi drivers and comparing them to the ordinary man on the street. London, is, as you know, is a, a huge city. And London taxi drivers, in order to get their license, have to pass a test where they're given, uh, without any uh, any specific warning, two points in the city, and they have to find, entirely mentally, they have to find their way in the shortest distance possible between those two points, which, mean, which means they have to keep a, a tremendous map of the whole city in their mind that they can recall instantly. Well, it turns out that London taxi drivers have a bigger right hippocampus, that's the structure on the inner surface of the brain, than do you and I, probably probably certainly than me. And it turns out also that the right hippocampus is a structure in the brain which is very, very important for spatial memory. So these people who have become taxi drivers have probably developed this part of the brain, and with the development of function in this part of the brain, the structure has changed. And so it really does go back to the idea that structure and function are quite closely related, and structure, therefore, is related to some of the individual character traits, uh, the things that distinguish uh, different people. In, indeed, indeed. Uh, you talk about perhaps they sort of developed these abilities. What about something that's more innate? Richard III, for instance, you talk about the relationship between nature and nurture. 
Well, the, the relationship between nature and nurture is, is one of the great debates. And what is very clear from a great deal of work is that there are genetic determinants and structural determinants of behavior. Um, and that's the, the nature side. And, and Richard III very much put upon himself, he, he argues that in his, in his fantastic uh, soliloquies, and even now is the winter of our discontent and so on, he says that he tries to explain to the audience why he is evil and why he is about to make evil happen. And Shakespeare's explanation that he puts in Richard's mouth is that, uh, he says, Richard says that, he said, I that am curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished. Richard's um, saying that he is evil because he was made to be evil. It's his nature to be evil. And we certainly recognize now that there are parts of the brain that are critically important for development of moral sense. There are areas on the lower surface of the front of the brain, the so-called orbital frontal cortex near the midline, that seem to be essential if we are to program in the sense of what is right and what is wrong. And this has come from beautiful work, particularly from Tony Damasio's lab in Iowa. He looked at a group of um, adolescents who uh, had, as, as very early in life, in the first uh, couple of years of life, had suffered bad damage to this part of the brain, so it was dysfunctional. These adolescents were actually remarkable sociopaths, and true sociopaths, in that it wasn't that they did bad things because they wanted to do evil, it was that they could not appreciate the difference between a moral act and an amoral act. Phineas Gage, who uh, was um, a foreman on the Transcontinental Railway construction project in, way back in 1848, was one of the most moral characters one could imagine. People sang his praises, and that's why he led a whole group working on the, on the railroad. But one, one afternoon, he was tamping down a dynamite charge, and a um, steel rod that he was using to tamp down this charge struck a spark, and it was blown through the lower part of his skull, exactly this part that was injured in Damasio's young people. Well, when he survived, this extraordinarily, but when he recovered, it was clear that his character had completely changed. Unlike the, the children that I just described, he knew the difference between right and wrong, but just like them, he was unable to act in a moral way. He couldn't um, restrain his behavior by his moral sense. So that's further evidence that there are specific areas of the brain whose structure needs to be intact in order for us to behave morally. What about our emotional involvement, such as love, anger, and jealousy, these sorts of things that were often portrayed in, in Shakespeare's work? How is modern neuroscience portraying that? Well, that, that's, um, that's really becoming one of the exciting stories. What, what we're beginning to learn is that we can divide the brain up into to large functional sections that interact. And we have the areas that are involved in perception and action, but there's also a large part of the brain that we can define as the, the emotional brain or the, the, the limbic uh, limbic structures of the brain is the technical term. And these are involved particularly in the emotional acts, the emotional aspects of a perception. So when, when we perceive, for example, the face uh, of a loved one, we not only are perceiving the structure of the face and its composition, the things that go into recognizing it as a face and recognizing it as a face that we can assign to a specific name, but we also endow this face with the very particular qualities that are associated with what we perceive as love. Now, in fact, Seymour Zeki, who I gather was on your show uh, not too long ago, uh, performed one of the most uh, intriguing experiments uh, that directly reflects on this. He and his group took uh, a group of, um, of subjects who were very much in love uh, with a specific person each, and 
then they showed them while they were in the imaging magnet many pictures of faces and mixed in amongst these pictures of faces of people they didn't know were the faces of their loved one and then they asked the question what's different about the brain activity when it sees the face of the loved one from the brain activity uh, when it sees just any face and they found that there actually were rather specific regions some of which involved areas of this limbic cortex or emotional brain that all seem to be working together to create this complex perception that we call love, which is, um, from the nature of the areas that were identified, probably linked to what we might call reward centers, so that love is, is in part activating similar sorts of areas to those that are activated by, by all sorts of pleasurable experiences. So we don't know what love is, and we can't make love happen just by stimulating the brain, but we are beginning to understand what the neural correlates of this behavior are, and we are beginning to understand that it is a specific and definable sort of behavior, just as Shakespeare tried to explain to us all those years ago. <laughs> so what do you think it is about Shakespeare that makes him so perceptive and makes it a good uh, observer of human nature and, and the functioning of the human brain? Well, clearly, I think it was Shakespeare's brain that sets Shakespeare apart. Shakespeare clearly was a tremendously brilliant man. He was not only an observer, but he was also able to translate his observations accurately. And one of the things that makes Shakespeare such a delight to read is, is not just that he's telling us what is true, but that he's telling it to us using a language that excites us, that really resonates. And there are innumerable special things about Shakespeare's language, but, but one of the things that I can bring out that modern brain science is beginning to, to understand is that he uses novelty in um, very special ways. Shakespeare was interested in using language that both sentence structures and ideas, metaphors that were unusual and remarkable. He would take ideas, put them together in special ways, and that made, makes the ideas sort of explode in our minds. And he also, you know that Shakespeare actually was responsible for bringing about 1,500 new words into the language. He didn't make up the words from nothing, but what he did is took existing words and changed their structure a little bit so that they became uh, special in their sounds by adding suffixes to them and so on. Now, what we know from modern brain science, as I, as I said, is that uh, our brains, which are, are really organs designed to help us adapt to changing environmental circumstances in, in effective ways, our brains are particularly tuned to novelty. There are special areas in the midline of the brain, the anterior cingulate cortex, which become extremely active and are very sensitive to any change in our environment whether it be linguistic or conceptual or even perceptual. There have been experiments that have been done using techniques such as magnetoencephalography where people have looked to see how the brain responds to words that are commonplace and words that are very novel. And the words that are very novel not only excite larger volumes of the temporal and, and frontal cortex, the parts of the brain that are particularly involved in language, but the activity in those areas is sustained for longer times. And, and that's what I think is a, is a nice analog, neural analog, for the, for the sense of this resonance in, in Shakespeare's language. Shakespeare didn't know about the brain activity underlying this, but he certainly understood the, the practical consequences of this, and he understood this from experiments in the theater rather than the laboratory. He saw what worked with his audiences, and of course what we're seeing in his plays is the distillation of many, many years of experience. So 
that's, I think, an extraordinary thing about Shakespeare's language that links his experiments in the theater with our experiments in the imaging laboratory now. It's hmm. fascinating. Uh, well, we are running a little bit out of time, though. Uh, I just want to ask, uh, how did you uh, become interested in writing this book? Well, it was uh, it was partly because um, here we are in Oxford, only 50 miles south of Stratford-on-Avon, <laughs> right. so he's a bit of a local boy. But um, I also very strongly believe that art and science are part of a common culture, and I thought it would be an exciting challenge to try to bring two of my personal loves together, and I think Jeff uh, McQuain shared in that view. Well, it certainly turned out to be a very fascinating book, and I hope our, our listeners will go out and get it. Dr. Matthews, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you on the program. Well, thank you, Charles. You were just listening to Professor Paul Matthews from Oxford University discussing his new book, The Bard on the Brain. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming next, you can find out why does corn have silk. So stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, have you ever wondered why corn has silk? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Did you ever wonder why corn has silk? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Corn is actually part of the grass family. To answer this question, we're going to become a member of it. Here we are in the middle of a cornfield in early summer. Right now, our corn plant consists of a stalk with a tassel at the top. This tassel produces male flowers that produce pollen. Further down this stalk are several cobs. Each cob is completely wrapped in leaves. And inside the leaves are hundreds of tiny threads called corn silk. They're also known as female flowers. Feel that breeze? The wind rustles through our cornfield, softly shaking each corn stalk, which causes the pollen from the tassel top up above to shake loose. Right now, the air above this cornfield is filled with male pollen. As it falls, the corn silk catches it. Once caught, the pollen begins to grow a tube. This tube passes down through the silk to the female flower on the cob. The pollen fertilizes the flower, producing a kernel on the corn cob. This repeats over and over again until this corn cob is covered with plump kernels. And we have an ear of corn that's ripe and ready to eat. 
So you see, without corn silk, there would never be corn on the cob, corn roasts, or for that matter, this show. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, making science make sense. Man, that everyday science lady is so corny. <laughs> She's also silky smooth as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, Talking about re- reproduction, in fact. <laughs> you know, if it weren't for her, I don't think I, I could possibly exist. <laughs> I just I need her to be plump and, and kernely. Wow, so you're a children of the corn, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and now here's Dr. Lecter with the answer to last week's question of the week. Ah, very good now. Run along and play, little Frankie. Yes, it's Dr. Lecter with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is the hardest organ in your body? Well, it turns out the liver is the hardest organ by temperature. If you stuck a thermometer in it, ooh, would it be hot. And now you know what goes well with fava beans and Chianti. <clears throat> Sense the dark side in you, I do, Mr. Lecter. <clears throat> but know what causes a sunburn to you. If you know the answer, or think you know the answer, email us at grogs at hotmail.com. You won't own anything, but your skin might not be so green. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. And if you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Lane. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel. Mr. Pixel.